One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week on the podcast, we're taking a sneak peek inside the working day of the journalist Tim Smedley. His book, Clearing the Air, The Beginning and the End of Air Pollution, has been shortlisted for the Royal Society Insight Investment Science Book Prize. Uh, Now, we'll talk about the process of writing a non-fiction book over an entire year. Also, how he knew that he needed it to be personal for the science stuff that's in there to actually be relatable. And we talk about how, right at the start, when he's faced with this huge idea that he had to try and make accessible, how he even knew where to begin and where to dive into it. So I think the entry point was when I realised this wasn't an environmental story, it was a public health story. I think think that was the the light bulb moment. Because I I think maybe in in the back of my head, I'd already been getting a bit kind of saddened maybe by climate change stories that I I wrote a lot of becoming so politicised there are only in certain newspapers not others Um, it became a left wing versus right wing issue and I'd often kind of beat my head against a bit wall with those things of thinking well you know how how can we make this how, how can we make half of the population actually understand that this that climate change is personal it's all on the way stick around it's this week's writer's routine Hello, thank you so much for giving us a listen. Um, My name's Dan, this is Writer's Routine, the show where we take a look inside the scheduling secrets of some of the world's most successful writers. We've got something a little bit different actually this week, it's not a fiction author, we've got Tim Smedley on, he's an award-winning sustainability journalist. He's written for the Financial Times, for the Guardian, for the Sunday Times, for the New Scientist, and a few years ago he realised just how unhealthy the air in London particularly was where he was living. So he left, up sticks, took his whole family with him, moved to the country and resolved to find out loads more about what was really going on. To do that, he travelled all around the world, spoke to all manner of experts and and he's written this book uh, that's trying to uncover what air pollution really is to make it relatable and accessible for us. Uh, Now, we don't often do non-fiction writers and I'll be honest, it's because I find it much harder you know, the interviews are much tougher. With fiction writers, they keep the whole story in their brain, they're aware of the whole process of how they've written it, and it's much simpler to unpick what happened when, how they had ideas. But non-fiction writers, they have an idea, 
they have to go away and do all the research, travel all around the world, that kind of stuff, do all the interviews, and then come back and write it. So the process is a lot more fragmented. Uh, it, it's kind of r- more research-based than the actual writing. We'll persevere with it, though, because um, have a listen to this. In late 2016, the World Health Organization announced that outdoor air pollution had caused over 3 million deaths worldwide. By 2018, they also revised this to up to 4.2 million, uh, with the UK contributing 40,000 deaths a year to this figure due to air pollution-related illnesses. So I think it's something that we all need to learn about, what we can do better to make sure that we're not drastically harmed simply trying to breathe in oxygen every day Uh, we talk about how tim distilled that huge concept into a navigable idea also how he made it accessible and relatable and how really his family and particularly his daughter were the key to that Uh, we'll get some top tips from a fiction writer as well so stick around for that Uh, first let's get some non-fiction help and advice with this week's guest tim smedley and we start things off as always talking about what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write I work in the garden office. Um, so when we moved house, moved to Oxfordshire, um, just as this book was starting, actually, as I started researching air pollution. And, yeah, I always fancied having a garden office in a kind of rural, dull way of being able to go out to your writing shed. But it's a bit of a step up from a shed. It's kind of it's got insulation. Um, yeah, so it's at the end of my office, it's, got, it's kind of half glazed half not so you can either have the privacy behind the wooden bit or you can be behind the window and kind of get all the light coming in um, and it's just behind a screen of silver birch trees like little silver birch trees um, and my desk so I've kind of got one of these standing desks but I rarely use it as a standing <laughs> desk and right in front of me I've got uh, a pin board um, how do you call it a chalk not a chalk um Cork board, yeah, a cork that's board. the one. A cork pin board. Yeah, yes. and, and still, even though the book is now fully out and, you know, long long done in a way, I've still got all the bits, all the paraphernalia of the trips from the book. I, I initially had it laid out as a grid, chapter by chapter. The idea being that I'd pin on each chapter, as, as I was working through the book, things that I wanted to do, people I wanted to interview. and But then it quickly just became a mess of memorabilia in a way of people I met and places I went yeah I think we'll unpack the um the the grid system the 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 plotting in a little bit let me just talk you through if if you have created this area almost to spec really you know I'm going to write Mm. in the country like Roald Dahl if I were to (laughs) what else in your room maybe jogs things along for you as a writer have you uh, any 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 pieces which get your creativity going? Do I see artwork? Is there a lovely view somewhere? Are there books a- a- across the shelves? There are books across the shelves. So kind of behind me, there's a small sofa and a bookshelf um, and a map of the world on the on the wall because you have to have a map of the world on the wall. Um, artworks, there's one artwork um, that I think my sister-in-law gave me of a Colombian artist, by a Colombian artist, which is... Um, it's kind of an environmental scene, kind of environmental illustration. Um, but in terms of what gets the creative juices flowing, I think it's just the seclusion. It's just the having your own space. So I used to have the, an office in the house. Going back a bit, I used to just have a desk in the front room. And that was difficult because it's not your own space. It's a shared space. 
and then you're quickly dipping in and out. You know, I, I remember I had a desk literally in the front room. This is when I was in London, in the front room by the front door. So that the postman comes, you can't <laughs> pretend to be out. They can see you, you're looking in their eyes. Um, so that was difficult. But yeah, it's been a, yeah, it's a nice luxury to have this garden office, but I found it um, very useful and, and almost... I think I would have almost written a, a poorer book if I didn't have a place to seclude myself. You know? Well, let's try and unpack that then. I mean, you're a, a writer and a journalist by trade outside of the actual book that's sat in front of me. Through all those years of, of writing, were you ever writing in an office desk in kind of a Fleet Street style in London? Yeah, so when I moved to London, I was working for a magazine. It was like a management magazine, um, a business magazine. And yeah, that, that was Central London, Clerkenwell... Um, it was a magazine publisher, so there's other magazines, you know, editorial teams sat near each other. It was quite lively. Um, yeah, I used to enjoy that side of things because then, you, you know, you're also working. I, I was always featured, so I was working on a slightly slower pace to the news team that was sat opposite me. But yeah, it was fun to be part of that. Yeah. So across all the different places that you've worked, and you said that the most recent place, this to spec. Uh, shed that you've got out there and that helps you with the seclusion what else have you learned along the way that really helps the way you write from moving from a you know a desk in an office to then your own desk at home where you can't avoid the postman to now you're outside how have things changed for you in, in in writing in specific places yeah, it's a good question. I, th- I think this element of trying to block things out has always been there. So when I worked in that office with lots of people, I would always have headphones in and I'd be listening to music um, when I was writing, you know. And then, then the social side of things, if I wasn't, if you know, if I was just researching on the internet or something, that was different. But um, yeah, I think for, for writing in particular, I think I've always needed to block things out. But, but I do remember a time when that music could have been... Um, anything really but increasingly I have to listen to music without words in it I can't concentrate <laughs> if there's words in a song um so I'm kind of getting increasingly ambient with my background music you know um maybe jazz but often kind of aphex twin ambient is going on in the background as I say my initial system was this grid formation on my corkboard, and I thought I'd kind of stick to that but no I don't I, I like the idea of being a very organized um, structured worker writer but I'm not really I'm, I'm quite scrappy and scruffy and I go in with an idea I go in with a structure um, and with with books you start off with a book proposal which is quite a clear this is what's going to happen throughout the book so you do start with that, but the actual process of writing a book, that initial book proposal kind of goes out the window a little bit. Well, let's get into the day-to-day process then. Uh, you mentioned being quite disorganised. I'm curious about the moments where you were trying to be organised. The show is called Writer's Routine. Tim, talk me through yours. The moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed on a day when you are sitting down to write this book, how did it look? Well, of course, with a book, there's two um, there's two parts to a book. There's the research and the writing, and and they are not um, nicely separated. They're, they are there's a lot of crossover between the two, but equally, there's a a, a peak 
in, in the graph, there's a peak of research where you're not doing much writing. You're just constantly organizing interviews, going out interviewing people, doing the logistics of, you know, the train journey, the plane journey. Um, and then you've just got, you know, a pile, a met metaphorical pile, because it's all digital now, of um, interviews to go through, to transcribe, um, so at that time, at that peak of the process, and I, I roughly did this book over a year in terms of the time that the book contract has agreed to the time that it has to be delivered. And I could have done it over longer. The publisher was perfectly happy to say, you know, give me as long as I, as I liked. But because it's such a timely topic, air pollution, because it's such a, a newsy topic, I wanted to get it out as quickly as possible. But they kind of agreed with me that a year is, is, is about the minimum to do a book like this so I said okay all right, I'll, I'll take a year but as a journalist that seemed like a, just a, mm. a luxury why would I need a year but you really do need a year <laughs> if I've got any advice to non-fiction authors you, a year is the minimum um, so yeah so the early part of that year is the research and the setting things up and yeah then, then I'm here there and everywhere um, and yeah, maybe I said disorganized. I don't think I am disorganized. There is organization in the way I do things. Um, I've worked as a, as a self-employed, you know, freelancer for quite a long time. So I'm just, I, I, I probably don't unpick the process enough, really. But I am, I guess I'm very deadline-driven as a journalist. I kind of, I, I somehow know how to fit in what I, what I need to fit in. Um, but yeah, the research element is, is one thing. Then the writing element, so the second half of the year, there was a good, solid, gosh, I guess probably four months when it was it was just me in that garden office. And then that was a slog, actually. That sounds like the great, that sounds like the best time in a way as a, as a writer or as someone listening to this um, wants to be a writer or is a writer already. You think that the sitting down and writing is the joyous part. It's... I mean, a part of it is. I mean, it was nice not to have to go up here, there and everywhere and, you know, have the, the headache of logistics. But that's the struggle. That's the dark night of the soul time when you, God, I do have this deadline. God, this, this book doesn't make sense. I've got the structure wrong. I've, how am I going to fit this in? I've, how do I get this story in there? Um, and then it was, um, I mean, as a journalist, I'm quite good at actually working a fairly normal working day a kind of a nine till five but on that writing that peak writing time for the book it you know I was going to bed at you know 10 11 12 and that doesn't sound too bad like if you're a millennial listening to that well that's early <laughs> but if you got you got kids and you get up at six o'clock um yeah you know basically every working hour I was I was working on the book what what did you find along the way that that helped you got it down that helped you got it out i think because this is such a because this is such a labor of love in the fact that as you say you've only got 4 months or 4 or 5 months to kind of take all this data that you've accrued and get it down onto paper try and make sense of all of this thing was there anything that kind of helped you along whilst you were working almost every hour of the day talking to some other authors helped so I did get in touch with, um, so the, the, the section of Bloomsbury that publishes my book is called Sigma Science, um, and they produce roughly a, a book a month, and it's purely popular science. Um, so they're quite a close-knit team, and it's, it's a bit of a family atmosphere, and, you know, there's occasional, you know, Christmas 
party quiz and things like that, which is nice because as a as a a book author, it's obviously a very solo thing to do. And as a freelance journalist, it's very solo. You you, you don't have that camaraderie as a team. But actually, with Bloomsbury and Sigma, um, there's been a bit of that, and it's been nice to have that. So I I'd met some of these authors before who had you know been published in previous months or previous year, so. Um, and so, yeah, I did ring up a couple and say, what did you do at this point? <laughs> How do you get through this? Well, and then all, you're constantly, into, I mean, uh, it's probably clear that this is my first book. Um, so every every stage was brand new to me. So, yeah, I was constantly interested. So what happens then? Like, what happens when you deliver your, your rough draft? What happens um, before that? Should you get people to read through it? Because you obviously got this deadline, this big delivery deadline, but... There's lots of deadlines before that. So you, you, your delivery deadline for a book should really be your totally complete version from your point of view as a writer. Um, but you should have had various drafts before that and got some people to read through it before that, you know. Talk about structure there. I want to unpack that a bit more yeah. uh, in a little while. I'm just curious because you've said that you were working for, for so long every day. You were really cracking through the hours was there a structure to what you were writing every day? Did you know, right, tomorrow's Wednesday, this is what I need to get done. How much did you know about what you were writing every day before you sat down in the chair? So I have, you know, I, I have my to-do list. Um, that tends to be how I work, really, my, just on Gmail tasks and putting things in the calendar. I mean, the calendar I mostly use for interviews and meetings i'm trying to think if i would have used that whilst writing well give me an example of what's in the to-do list for a day when you are writing i would love to say that i just worked systematically finishing the first chapter and then the second chapter but really it wasn't that it was i think i worked i did have a chapter plan in my head it did change but the 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 rough structure was always there this wanting to answer these four questions of what is air pollution where does it come from what does it do to our health and what can we do about it so in a way the book was always in that four in in those four quarters um and i guess i did write through issues um so i would have been working on an issue that i didn't i wouldn't have jumped around too much outside of those I did have one chapter, though, which got moved around so much. Um, at one point, it was chapter one. I'm actually opening my book now to remember which <laughs> chapter. No, it ended up as chapter four. It had been chapter one. It had been chapter two. I think it had been chapter three. It ended up as chapter four. The chapter's called No Smoke Without Fire, and it's basically a chapter about the history of fire and man and humans. So when did human when when did when did human beings first start using fire? Is is fire and our relationship with smoke somehow part of what makes us human? So we kind of have this picture of cavemen in advert commas discovering fire, and this is like a great moment. And from that point on, um, we are we live side by side with fire. So I kind of wanted to do this almost history of air pollution back to when an ape like human first learnt how to make fire um so that sounds like an obvious chapter one 
but it's not actually because my book's about modern air pollution. It's about it's more about diesel and um, traffic fumes and what how we've managed to fill our cities and our roads, make roads, and then fill them with these kind of uh, mini combustion engines burning fossilized, um, you know, uh, fossil fuels, fossilized tiny little sea creatures from millions of years ago. How do we end up just burning that? close to where we live mm. so really my my story, my book is about modern air pollution so that where did this where did this chapter fit and I've, I've moved it around so many times and I'm, I'm pleased with where it is now <laughs> but really up till I reckon a couple of weeks before I submitted the book I think that was at least chapter two so another thing about the book process the writing process is that as a journalist as a features writer I'm used to writing long features um, long form features and so the chap- the book was always going to be you know 10 or 11 chapters I thought it would just be like writing 10 or 11 features it, it so isn't it, it's so different and it's kind of hard to put your finger on why but it's basically because every chapter has to work alone and together and you have to have that f- so yes you could look at a chapter and say yeah that could work as a long form feature because a, a chapter has to have a beginning middle and end it has to have a story within a chapter but then it also has to work in a narrative arc that goes through the whole book um so you're constantly spinning these plates i suppose and that and that chapter the kind of history of of, of fire chapter it just didn't it, it, it didn't work to start that story because, as I say, the story is about modern pollution. Um, it moved us to chapter two because chapter two now is life's a gas, and that's about just the, getting into the nitty gritty of what these pollutants are that we, we're worried about. Is talking to scientists and atmospheric chemists about how these pollutants are formed, like the technical details of what happens when they come out of the back of a car and hit the air. What 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 happens to these gases and these particles? So that I felt needed to come a bit closer to the start because we almost get the science bit out the way <laughs> we shouldn't say that when we're in the royal society recording this um but yeah i wanted to kind of get that in there um then it's particulate matter so it's the same thing but like particulate matter these particles in the air are the biggest killers so i again needed to have that soon in the narrative and then actually then the history of fire chapter is chapter four it actually gives you a little bit of a breather instead of this kind of you don't you don't want to relentlessly plod through the science mm. um and i don't think those chapters are relentless plods but they you needed a bit of a break from them well it's more storytelling as well i yes. imagine so yeah. so when you're at that point when you're looking through the history of of, of cavemen and why they're using fire uh, we're getting into the uh, the nitty-gritty of the book now so let's talk more about this i'm aware that uh, we've not really explained it <clears throat> so it's clear in the air talk to me tim about the very first moment that the idea that became this story came into your mind? Well, I've obviously kind of got a, a pat answer to this because it's something I asked a lot. Um, and whether this is now true or not, I don't know. But in the retelling, it's almost become the truth. And I think it is. In that, So I'm an environmental journalist, 2014, living in London, just become a dad. Um, I don't know whether I was looking for the next story to write. I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, you're always looking for the next story to write as a, as a journalist, an environmental journalist. But anyway, I, I pick up a copy of the London Evening Standard on the tube on my way home. Um, and there's a story in it with the headline, Oxford Street has the worst diesel pollution on earth. Um, 
and it, yeah, it, it it completely completely sideswiped me because I hadn't con- hadn't really well I hadn't written about air pollution before. I hadn't really thought about air pollution that much. I guess I thought that air pollution was smog in other countries. Um, London, you know, we're sat in the Royal Society at the moment, looking out on green trees. This isn't an uncommon. Site is a very leafy city, and it looks clear and when, it looks when clear. you think yeah. of air pollution and smog. Yeah, I, I you know, you'd think about how poor the visibility would be. Exactly. Now, London doesn't often look smoggy. If we're talking from a, an international uh, standard, an international comparison, London rarely looks smoggy. Um, but yeah, on a clear clear day like this, looking up at that blue sky, there'll be a lot of pollution uh, around us. Um, so anyway, so, and, and within this story, it had some things about this stuff called PM 2.5 and this stuff called NOx, kind of written as if we're supposed to know what these things were, and I didn't. Um, and I thought, well, and it, the, the more I've read articles like this, I think quite often the journalists don't know either. They're just terms that have become synonyms for pollution, but they're not. Actually, they're very specific types of pollution. So anyway, and, and Oxford Street being the 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 street that I'd taken my daughter down to pick out her pram, I didn't know that I was exposing her to the worst diesel pollution on earth. I mean, this suddenly made it very personal. Um, I, I guess I'd, I'd, maybe I'd become too used to writing about environmental issues that are mostly quite far away. Um, but this is one right on my doorstep that I was living in the midst of, and I hadn't known about it. So, yeah, I, I was quite, I was taken aback. I was, I was shocked by this, and I, I wanted to know more as a, as, as a journalist, as a writer, uh, as a parent, I wanted to know more about this thing, air pollution, that was clearly was very bad in London and no one knew. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
I'm sorry to break up this potentially life-changing episode of the show with just a little request for money, uh, but I need to do that. If you enjoy the show and you want us to carry on bringing you episodes as frequently as we can, maybe you just want to say thanks for the all the chats and tips and advice from over 70 authors that we've brought you over the last couple of years, please do support us uh, with uh, a dollar or so a month over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. It's the best way that you can help us carry on doing this what we love uh, as often as possible and we've got a lot of good guests on the way we've got more fiction writers we've got ruth hogan on the show i'm in talks with some of the biggest authors in the in the world really that have sold millions and millions and millions of books next week we're also chatting to the writer tom mccray uh, who, who wrote the award-winning, hugely successful West End musical uh, Everybody's Talking About Jamie, which is being turned into a feature film right now. I managed to catch up with him uh, while he was busy writing the film, by the way, uh, to talk about his daily process over in LA. Uh, I, I spoke to him all about that, and he's on this show next week. So if you're enjoying the fact that we're bringing you a, a wider range of writers, not just fiction, not just crime authors, but something a little bit different, if you want to say thanks and pay something back, please do uh, by pledging to the show over on Patreon. Uh, you can also get your own episodes specifically made just for you by doing that, where you can ask your questions to some of the world's best writers. Uh, you can get yourself merch, badges, bookmarks, that kind of stuff. That kind of stuff, and it doesn't even need to cost more than a cup of coffee every month. I'd love for you to get involved and help the show out. Just fire over whatever you can spare. I promise you it's extremely appreciated. You can do that. Pledge to us over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Hi, I'm Sheila of Flanagan. My latest book is Her Husband's Mistake. And my writing tip for you is to allow yourself to get it wrong. Um, too often people, people want to start with the perfect first sentence and when they can't do that, they the book away they put their work away they don't they don't want to carry on or they write the first chapter and they think this is terrible uh, and they put that away too and they they hide it in a folder they shove it into their desk once you've got words down you can change every single one of them it doesn't matter what they are um go scroll up the page as well as down the page that's what I would say to you. Right, let's get back to it with Tim Smedley, uh, the award-winning sustainability journalist all about his brand new book, Clearing the Air, the beginning and the end of air pollution. It's been shortlisted for the Royal Society Insight Investment Science Book Prize. Uh, now, in this part of the show, we'll talk about how he used his travels in the book, how that was quite a big problem for him, figuring out where to put his journeys to different countries, the format and the plotting of it. Also, we'll look about what the future is actually looking like. Is it as bleak as I think everyone in the world, particularly in the UK, is imagining the world to be and the future to look like right now? And we'll get back into it talking about the book itself. When he had that initial idea, when he wanted to learn more about air pollution and how it's affecting us, what did he do next? Well, I guess initially I must have thought about it as a, as an article or something to just look into a bit. Um, I wrote mostly for The Guardian at the time. It's something that I, they, they would have happily picked up. But it, the more I looked into it, the more complex it became. Now, I was used to writing about complex topics in, you know, trying to make it as, as, as brief and uncomplicated as possible. But as I say, quite often the articles at that time also didn't really know... 
it's unfair to say didn't know what they're talking about, but it, it is a complex topic. And the more I researched, the more difficult it became. I guess very early on, I came across these World Health Organization stats of, I think, back then, uh, I think it was 3.8 million people around the world were dying from air pollution. Now it's it's in the four millions and, and likely to surpass five. Um, and there'd just been... And, uh, some, very around the same time, there had been a Royal College of Physicians report on air pollution in the UK, um, and this was probably one of the first reports that really went into detail in terms of so okay, this this global issue is happening actually really badly in the UK, and it it really laid out what was happening to people, what what the health problems were, and um, the likely numbers in the UK of forty thousand people, around forty thousand people die every year in the UK from air pollution related illnesses. Um, and I guess maybe at some point I thought, well, next stage I'll I'll read a book about it. There wasn't a book about it. <laughs> there was no book, no popular science book. Um, there was just some quite dry academic um, books that were out there, but written for a science mm. audience. Um, but there was a huge amount already of academic journal reports and 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 uh, papers out there. But but it didn't it didn't seem that anyone had, had translated. No, no one had kind of there was nothing in between. So I guess that's about the time when I thought, well, actually, maybe I should write this book. When you've got this, when you've got that, you know, oh, I need to translate it. It sounds such a naive question, but how do you translate it? It seems where did, where do you start in taking all of this information that's out there and making it more accessible? What are you trying to do? How are you trying to get the tone and the voice of the piece right to make it interesting and accessible to someone like me who's not of a science background? Mm. Uh, how, how do you kind of ask that question of yourself? How do you get that balance right? Well, I guess it, if I have a skill, it is doing that. So uh, I had been a, a sustainability journalist for quite a while. I had been writing about, as I say, quite complex environmental topics. As, as a non-scientist, I have no science background um, to the point of, I think I have the most minimal possible science background of, of anyone. I, I did like single science GCSE, one, you know, one GCSE. Um, so I'm used to kind of going in as the outsider and asking the basic questions and trying to understand them myself and, and then explain them. Um, so I'm kind of used to being that go-between, that kind of conduit, if that doesn't sound too pretentious. Um, what was the entry point? <clears throat> so in trying to make this mm. accessible, what do you think really helped you open that door uh, when, when you've got this huge detail and just trying to think, hang on, what, what does that mean? Then I can unpick it. So I think the entry point was when I realised this wasn't an environmental story, it was a public health story. I think I think that was the, the light bulb moment, that it's the people dying here, it's, it's the, the, the making the environmental personal. I think that was the entry point. Because I, I think maybe in, my, in the back of my head, I'd already been getting a bit kind of saddened maybe by climate change stories become, that I, I wrote a lot of becoming so politicised. There are only in certain newspapers, not others. 
Um, it became a left-wing versus right-wing issue. And I, I, I'd often kind of beat my head against a bit more with those things of thinking, well, you know, how, how can we make this? How, how can we make half of the population actually understand that, this, that climate change is personal? Um, now, here was a story, air pollution, which is a separate thing, but there, there are many crossovers. Um, but air pollution is immediately personal. The fact that in London, and, and I, I don't want to harp on about London too much, it's just that this was my way in. I was living in London, London had some of the worst pollution. But air pollution is actually a problem in every town, city, or village even, uh, especially in winter. So it's not just a London problem, and that's an important point. Um, but yeah, it, it, was that, it was that fact that actually this is a health problem. This is uh, a health problem that people are not aware of and probably need to be made aware of because we, we've had these public health awareness campaigns over the years for smoking, of course. And so now everyone knows that smoking is bad for you. And now everyone knows that passive smoking is bad for you. Um, and we've changed our habits as a nation. We're changing our habits around the world because of that knowledge, that dissemination of knowledge. Um, but we hadn't had anything similar for air pollution. And air pollution is very synonymous, really, with passive smoking. Um, and it, yeah, someone kind of needed to make that point. And I, I think that was the turning point for me. That was the way in for me as, as, as well as my thinking. That was a way in for readers. So when you're in, then what do you do? I know I keep asking this, but, you know, if, 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 if you're chatting to the scientists and you know, the experts that you are chatting to in the book, how do you possibly know where to start, who to call, how you're going to get the best, most efficient knowledge that is out there? There's an element of... of um, you know, a lot of research. And there's also an element of luck. So my, my lucky break was my very first interview was with a guy, for the book, was with a guy called Ali Lewis, who is a professor of atmospheric chemistry at York. Um, now, I interviewed, subsequently I interviewed quite a lot of professors. And um, many of them are great. Some are kind of a little bit, you know, they don't really want to be giving up their, their precious time. You know, rightly so. Yeah. I, don't, I don't want to sound critical. Thank and, you for sitting there with me, by I'm the way. I'm so grateful to everyone I interviewed. But... Um, or some are just, you know, here's another journalist wanting yeah. to write about this very specific subject. Um, and I have to try and explain it again. But anyway, Ali Lewis was wonderful. Um, gave me all the time in the world. Just sat me down and we just talked about air pollution, his specialist subject. Um, and a, a lot flowed from there in terms of what to look at next. Um, in terms of just understanding the issues in terms of even where I should be traveling to, to, to learn more. So that, yeah, I mean, obviously I, to, I, I discovered him and I can't remember where from, but I, that was just lucky that that was the first interview, I think. Let's talk about the more writing process then, because I'm aware that it's so wide ranging. When I speak to nonfiction authors, there's the main difference between fiction and nonfiction. I think with fiction authors, everything is always happening in their head. Whereas nonfiction, you're relaying something that you've already done, really. The book's been, uh, has almost been written in the first four months when you've done all the research. When you've got all that research, though, how are you fashioning that into the, the 300 pages that are sat there in front of me? How do you know that? And you've already said that it changed. How do you know mm. the structure that is going to take? Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> so, for instance, before, yeah. before you moved it to be the fourth chapter, yeah. why did you think I'm going to start with a bit of storytelling and, and then talk through the history of fire? Well, I guess, you know, we, we all think chronologically at first, and it, it seemed chronological to do that. 
Um, but in a way, that wasn't the chronology of the story. The chronology of the story was my becoming interested in it. It was explaining who I am. Why does someone want to read a book by me about air pollution? Who is this Tim Smedley guy? You know, what's his credentials? And, I ha- and, and my, my first introduction um, was quite dry, I think. Um, it's possibly even a bit defensive. It's probably even a bit kind of... I was, I was trying to answer that question. Why, why read it by me? And I was almost saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm not an academic. And, you know, this, you know, this, you know I, had, I had to learn about this. But anyway, I, I made it a much more personal opening because it was a personal thing. I, I, I was a young father who was suddenly worried about my infant daughter. And I, and I was, like everyone in the public, ignorant of this huge public health issue. And so my, my, my story was that I, I wanted to learn this. I wanted to learn what air pollution was. And then I wanted to be able to relay it and maybe do something about it. Um, but that was the starting point for the narrative of the book, not caveman discovering fire in South Africa, you know. We've already spoken about making it accessible for an audience. How much did you think about the next word on the page? What word is following the one I've just written? Mm, I d- I, I'm not sure I could go that be that granular, but I I certainly I, 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 I certainly always try to make sure that I'm using the if if you got a choice between an, a Latin word and an, an easy word, I'd always go for the easy word. And one of my pet hates actually is is authors that throw in a bit of Latin or or a, an other. Um, language and just expect you to know it because you had this obviously you had the same classical education as I did and I, I find that so cliquey so um, and you know I didn't have a classical education so I wouldn't be able to do that anyway um, but I yeah I, I, I tried to make it readable I tried, tried to make it um, as simple as possible without being dumbed down basically I struggled a bit for a while with working out how to use my travels in the book. So the easiest way to, would be chapter 7 is the Indian chapter. Yeah. Chapter, chapter 8 is the Chinese chapter. Chapter 9 is Paris, you know. Um, and I think there was a time when I thought that's how I'd do it, that's easy. Um, but because it's an issues-based book, it had to be done through the what is air pollution, what causes it, what does it do to us, what we can do about it. So it had to flow in that direction. And because you're asking all those questions in each of those places, it would stop the flow. So (laughs) that was really tricky. How how did you work out the correct way to explain your travels through the work? Well, so I started slotting in bits of the interviews, my diary notes, my, my travelogue, bits i started slotting them into the, stru- the the flow of the book in terms of the issues i was covering and then and again i don't know exactly when i when i happened on this so chapter one is called the greatest smog um so this sorry to explain the book is in two parts part one is origins i've called it origins but it's basically what air pollution is where it comes from and then part two is fight back which is basically the solutions what places are doing about it so in chapter one, The Greatest Smog, is split up into these different cities. So I start off with London in 1952. That sounds random, but um, in 1952... Let me just cut in there. I'm just reading. Yeah. So the first sentence here is both my parents were born in 1952. Yeah. 
you're diving straight into it then. So we were talking earlier about how, you know, it's all about you. And yeah. you've really leapt straight into it Well, there. this is... Um, how much... This is the t- start of chapter one. So there is a prologue. Mm. There is a prologue, and the prologue is my first yeah. daughter was born in London in March 2014 at St Mary's Hospital in Paddington on the first day of spring. And then I go on to relay that I shortly discovered that there was a pollution episode going on at that very moment. Again, a clear blue sky day like this, um, but thousands of people were being admitted into hospital. And no one knew about it. There wasn't even any headlines about it at the time. I only found out about that through one of these dry journal papers that I happened upon whilst writing the book that talked about this pollution episode of March 2014 in London. I was like, that, that was when my daughter was born. And then I looked into it and was like, okay, so that's, that's the opening to my book. So this is a huge... I'm always fascinated by first mm. sentences. Yeah. This is a huge subject that you're talking about. Is it a subject that not many people know a lot about. And immediately I read that first sentence... And I've got an inkling as to how the rest of this story is going to read. How long did it take you to write that first sentence to figure out how it would be word perfect? Um, yeah, a, a, a while. And as I say, I did have a prologue or an intro. I, I, I changed around between calling them prologues and introductions. I still don't know if I made, if I made the right choice. But I've got a prologue and an epilogue, so, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a nice bookend to the, to the book. Um, and yeah, the, I did have a, an initial prologue that was dry and trying to kind of, I can't even remember, but it was bad. It was bad. And, and it needed to be made personal. And this was a relatively late in the day rewrite for me, completely rewriting the prologue and making it personal. And as you say, it's now a very personal, bringing it right down to the family start to both the prologue and chapter one. Yeah. And in terms of perfecting that first sentence, I mean, yeah, I guess most, most authors, authors would be lying if they said they hadn't rewritten their first page a lot of times. It would have been. It would have been. So I ended up being quite optimistic in the book. The book, I, I believe, is an optimistic book. And I, I, I have a feeling that's why the Royal Academicians probably quite like it, because it, there is a solution to air pollution. Um, and it's actually quite simple, really. So the, the, the science of air pollution is quite technical and quite complex, and how it affects our body is, is ongoing science. And it's, and, but it's fascinating to read about that development and some of the, some of the experiments um, that some of the academics did was uh, astonishing, really. There's a, a brilliant team in Edinburgh um, who did some early air pollution studies where they basically filled an exposure chamber with diesel pollution and got human volunteers to cycle on exercise bikes, and they kind of tested to see what happened to them. Um, you know, you could almost question the ethics, yeah. but except for the fact that the diesel levels they had in these exposure chambers were about the same as you'd have on an ordinary street. Yeah. And lo and behold, they found that as soon as they started breathing in this ordinary amount of diesel fumes, ordinary from a, 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 you know, a city perspective, um, their veins started to thin, their blood pressure went up, and this is happening to us on a daily basis. Um, so, yes, so I've, I've gone off on my own tangent there. But basically, so it's fascinating to read about the science nuts and bolts. But, and it is complex. Um, but we do, the, the science is very much coming through. Of, we do now know, in many ways, how air pollution damages us. We, in, in, in many ways, in many parts of the body. So the, the science is, is now known. But then so the question is, what do we do with that science? Um, 
what do we do about it? And, and so the second half of the book is all about that. It's all about the solutions. It's all about what different sitters are doing, politicians are doing. And the solution, you can put it into one sentence, and it sounds really trite, because it is in a way, but it's stop burning stuff. If you stop combustion, you basically end air pollution. Um, so it, combustion in a city is mostly traffic fumes. It's mostly the internal combustion engine. It's mostly the, you know, the millions of litres of gasoline and diesel that are being burnt day in, day out. Um, we, we, it's not good stuff to breathe in. It's, it's hugely bad for our health. Um, so the solution really is, is, is getting rid of that source of pollution. So yes, electric cars is one. Even better, though, is improving active transport, which is basically walking and cycling. So segregated cycle lanes that people can safely cycle up and down. Um, There's a huge, huge benefit for everyone that lives in the city when that happens. So we're seeing London starting to do that with the cycle superhighways. It's, it's brilliant. I mean, obviously, we hear these stories about Copenhagen and Amsterdam. You know, the, the total number of journeys is, is huge on bike. And we think that, well, they're different to us, but... Both those cities were hugely car-based in the 70s like us. They just chose a different way of developing. Um, a, a decision was made. It's a political decision. It all comes down to politics in the end. So do we want to make it far easier to own and run an electric car than a diesel and petrol car? I would suggest that's the way to go. Um, we need to do that through things like diesel scrappers schemes, helping people to replace their cars. We need to do things like helping it, people to yeah get on a bike if they can you know and there's a crazy stat that over half of all journeys in the UK by car are under three miles and 28% are under one mile so I get that some of those are you know elderly people or disabled people but not no not 28% um, there's so many so many things we could do a little bit differently that would have a huge impact um, so yeah Although there's, there is doom and gloom about air pollution, no question. But actually, it's a hugely solvable problem, and it's solvable locally. So it's not like climate change, where it's it's a global issue, and everything that every country does have an has an impact on every other country. With air pollution, um, you can solve it locally. There is there is an element of transboundary pollution that comes in from other countries, but mostly it's down to your proximity to a road. Basically, that's what it comes down to. Today, I, I had a look at my phone this morning, and it's technically a good air day in London. Yeah. But um, there's a, a Twitter site run by, um, a, 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 sorry, a Twitter feed run by King's College called London Air, and they tweet out a map of the pollution. So it's mostly green, green being you know, green being the good. Mm. But if you zoom in on the map, um, every road is orange or red. So every road, no matter what the day no matter how wonderful the air quality away from those roads. On those roads, every day is a bad air day. Every day is a health-hazardous bad air day on a road, and that's because we burn petrol and diesel in our cars. So it's solvable. We just have to have the political will to say, OK, let's go for electrification. Let's make cycling and walking easier. (laughs) 
And that is the end of this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Tim Smedley uh, for sparing the time for coming on to the show. Also, thank you so much to the Royal Society for sparing us a room to do the interview. This incredible palace, almost, of knowledge and learning and science in central London. I'm really, really chuffed that I was able to go there to do the chat. If you want to find out more about Tim's work, you can over at writersroutine.com. And massive good luck to him uh, in the prize that he's been shortlisted for, the Royal Society Insight investment science book prize i'll give you updates about that uh, you can find out how he did when the winners are announced in a couple of months i think right next week on the show i've already said we've got the writer of everybody's talking about jamie the fantastic musical tom mccray uh, he'll be on talking about uh, how he managed to write one of the world's most groundbreaking musicals right now that's currently being turned into a feature film he'll be on the show next week to tell us more If you have enjoyed what you've heard today, maybe you've got a few tips, please do uh, say thank you, pay it back, support the show over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. And if you get a spare second, I'd love for you to leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts. Just spare a minute or so uh, let everyone else know what you think it really helps with the chart and helping other people that need the tips from our writers find the tips from our writers also give us a follow on twitter uh, and instagram we are writers pod on twitter writers routine on instagram and that's it i'll see you next week with tom mccray on the show thank you so much for joining us bye Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 